Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Scott DeVoe, a professor of critical and comparative studies in the McIntyre Department of Music at the University of Virginia. Professor DeVoe has revolutionized jazz scholarship over a decades-long career, celebrating and analyzing this American and now world art form. His book, Jazz, was nominated for the 2010 Jazz Journalists Association Best Book. He has also written the award-winning book, The Birth of Bebop, A Social and Musical History. In this podcast, Professor DeVoe will talk to us about the musical group, The Beatles. He's teaching a class on the Beatles this fall semester, and I reached out to see if he could share some of his teachings for our Lifetime Learning listeners. So thank you, for Professor DeVoe, for being here today and sharing your knowledge of the music of the Beatles. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, so let's start with why you were drawn to teaching this course and why the Beatles. Yeah, my usual thing is jazz, as you mentioned. And, uh, you know, there, there's a, I mean, there's a significant difference between jazz and rock. Uh, I, I admire jazz deeply. It is uh, music created by some of the best musicians on the planet. Uh, and I'm always astounded at their virtuosity. Uh, and it's a good music for musicians. Uh, which is why it, why it appeals to me. Um, but, you know, I have uh, noticed that uh, there, are, there are kinds of music out there that appeal much more broadly than that. And one of them certainly is rock. And for me, it's also a much earlier uh, point of reference. Uh, I didn't really start listening to jazz until I was already in college and didn't really start trying to play it until about that time. Uh, I had started listening to the Beatles as soon as they arrived on these shores, which must have been uh, sometime early in 1964, as soon as my older brother brought a copy of the album Meet the Beatles to me and just said, isn't it cool? Don't they look great? Don't you love their haircuts? And, you know, I, I was nine, so I didn't really have much of a reaction to that, although I do remember looking at that photograph, that famous photograph where they're they're kind of photographed in black and white with their faces in shadow. I mean, this is a peculiar part of their artiness uh, back then. They were, um, they had made friends with uh, some uh, uh, innovative photographer when they were, when they were playing in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, and they just, you know, that their, their music and so forth kind of got mixed up with that stuff as well. So, I mean, Beatles have just been part of my childhood, uh, you know, all the way through high school. I mean, I followed those albums and was puzzled and turned off by some of them until I listened to them enough to kind of feel that, okay, I'm up with this. Uh, I remember hearing uh, the White Album when I was in uh, junior high school. Uh, this must have been in the small town of Bradford, Pennsylvania. It's kind of, which is, you know, a town of about 12,000 people. I'm surprised at that 
particular English teacher decided to do that, but he was a rock musician himself and he just brought it in. And I remember hearing, why don't we do it in the road in a classroom and just he's a little embarrassed to discover that that was on there, but, you know, rolled with it. Um, you know, yeah, it was, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's deeply embedded. Um, I mean, it, it, it goes much deeper into my brain cells as things that you pick up in your youth uh, tend to be uh, rather than things you pick up in uh, adulthood. So with that in mind, uh, I, there is, I mean, there's that, and there's also the amount of time that's passed. Uh, uh, I remember 25 years after the Beatles ended, uh, it was kind of like seeing an odometer turn over. I suddenly started noticing programs on television talking about the Beatles, and I just realized that 25 years, which is a full generation, is about as much time as you need to be able to historically start to process something. And it was at that point that I began to find out about a lot of the cool things that are now readily available, but were just starting to uh, make their way into public knowledge about how their recordings were made, uh, about how Strawberry Fields was actually put together from two uh, recordings that were at slightly different pitches and slightly different tempos. And John Lennon said, I'd love it if you could combine those. And they just figured out a way to do it. And that produced an effect that you know, at the time, I just thought this is just the way the music sounds. And now I'm going, yeah, this is a this is a real construction that that is going on. And now people can hear all these different takes uh, there. Are, many of them are available on the Beatles anthology, for example, so that everyone can listen to these early takes and hear the two different things and then hear what it sounds like when they finally manage to hammer the whole thing together. So that was 25 years ago, and now it's, you know, it's more like uh, 50 years. So, you know, there are two generations. Uh, and uh, this is about the time where I just said, yeah, there's enough stuff out there that uh, having a classroom discussion really feels like uh, an opportunity to, to reach back into the now distant past. And, uh, and I at least can offer my own take on it as uh, an adolescent, uh, which I've found to be um, uh, surprisingly flawed in some cases. There were a few cases where somebody pointed out a detail and I listened to it and I just said, I've listened to this recording probably close to a thousand times and I've never heard that before. And it just floored me. Um, so, you know, what can I say? Uh, there's just a lot of depth in these things. Obviously, the stuff is held up to the course of time and, and has not gone anywhere. So I'm glad to be trying to deal with it with uh, uh, contemporary UVA students. Great. So let's start in the early years. What kind of music did the Beatles listen to and cover in the early years when they were in Hamburg and basically as a cover band? They were always interested in American music, uh, starting with Elvis and Little Richard and Chuck Berry and some of the big stars. Um, they then kind of 
developed their own peculiar tastes, uh, which were primarily not from radio, uh, because, you know, the, the BBC was the only radio in, in England, and uh, they just didn't play that much contemporary American uh, music. Uh, they did it through recordings, and they just became fascinated with the more obscure recordings they could find, the better. I mean, it's a difficult thing for them to do because they actually had to purchase 45s to be able to listen to them. Uh, but they could go into a record store and just go to a listening booth and just put on various recordings and, you know, sort of mull over each one until they decided which one they were going to, going to buy. Um, they, you know, the, the, these musicians gathered because of uh, mutually congruent tastes and where things took off is uh, in, when they started playing in Hamburg, where they, they were playing in uh, under fairly rough conditions. Uh, I suspect four or five hours a night. Uh, and I've heard Paul McCartney say on uh, his latest broadcast on Hulu, McCartney 321, he just said, we just didn't want to be bored. We didn't want to do the same old tunes. So we would just try, continuously try, putting together new tunes all the time so that we would have new things to play. Uh, they came, they ended up becoming very skillful at being able to hear something and then be able to mutually decide how their respective parts could fit together to form uh, a recording. Uh, at this point in, in Hamburg, the band is essentially the Beatles as we know it, but without Ringo, uh, they still had Pete Best. And, and it's only in the, I think they were in Hamburg three different times. I think it's only in the last one or two times that they had Paul McCartney on bass rather than on guitar. I guess the last two times. Uh, and that became an essential part of their puzzle because McCartney on bass is able to think of things that intersect with what people are doing on guitar in a very interesting contrapuntal way adding a melody and rhythm that contrasts with everything else. And also just inventing uh, interesting harmonies because he was capable of uh, playing around with that kind of stuff. Uh, so, I mean, I'm thrilled that he learned to play bass rather than somebody else, to be honest. That's interesting. So they were playing from for three to four hours? Four or four to five hours. Oh, I mean, wow. these long, this is just this is just grueling labor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, on this uh, on this broadcast, uh, I think uh, Rick Rubin said something like, "You know, how many hours do you think you guys put in?" And 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 Paul McCartney says, "You know, ten thousand hours." Just you know, as as the man said, in other words, this is the standard mm -hmm. idea that 10,000 hours is what you need to do something. I don't think he sat there and totaled it up, but I think he just felt that they had put in enough hours that after a while they got to the point where it really became uh, automatic for them to be able to, to do that stuff. And they were not composing at that time. Uh, their composing came, I mean, 
they were McCartney and Lennon were doing some songs ahead of time, but that really was not part of what they were doing in Hamburg. It was more when they were back in Liverpool and when they were starting to try to get a recording contract. And especially once they had a recording contract, they began to realize that uh, composing songs was uh, an ex well, how, how, how can I put it? Um, Apparently, there were enough bands beginning to cover the same repertory as them. Uh, McCartney remembers uh, realizing that he was going to follow a band called, I think, Derry and the Seniors. And this guy had a little Richard imitation. And McCartney's going, that's my imitation. I'm either going to have to do that better than him in order to deal with it, or I better come up with my own tune because then they won't be able to copy that, you know, as opposed to everybody having little Richard to listen to and trying to deal with it. So that was another impulse for them to begin to start coming up with their own tunes. Once they started, they just found that it was relatively easy for them to come up with interesting songs and they just catapulted to the top of the UK list in 1963. That's sort of where Beatlemania started, uh, like in the summer and fall of 1963. Um, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a dramatic thing there. Uh, you certainly can hear a lot of their early repertory on recordings from the BBC, where they were more or less on the radio continuously uh, for about a year before they came over to the US and then broke in there and then became international stars. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how, how their career, while it was fairly rapid, still had to inch up notch by notch uh, on uh, the rock group scale from, you know, cruddy little clubs in Liverpool to places like Hamburg, which were not polite places. This is in their red light district. And then to places like the Cavern in Liverpool, which is literally three underground storage units that they happen to turn into a club. I think they then filled it in with concrete eventually. Um, and then eventually to things like ballrooms and theaters. And then they started getting recordings and then they're on the radio and television, but still only in the UK. And then they broke through in the US and then, you know, everything busted loose. Then they, then they became something uh, that they had, uh, well, they really they had no ability to control um their their tourings only lasted internationally for three years um because they couldn't hear themselves the screaming was so loud they couldn't hear what they were playing and it was exhausting and not much fun uh and uh, you you do wonder what would have happened had they stayed together like into the 1970s by which point people began to realize it's possible to have a rock group give a large concert somewhere. I mean, you just look at the Rolling Stones who managed to do that in the 1970s and then just said, yes, we can do this for the next 50 years. You know, the Beatles never made it that far. In 1966, it was still 
too primitive. And, you know, when they stopped, they were just saying, we're just never going to do this again. And by the time they broke up, that was, you know, when it might have been possible. So back to your questions, because I, <laughs> otherwise I, I'm, I'm used to just talking. and that's. <laughs> so uh, how can we differentiate the kinds of songs that John Lennon and, and uh, Paul McCartney wrote? It's a fascinating collaboration. Um, their personalities were quite different. Uh, McCartney's, McCartney came from, uh, he had some turmoil as a youth. His mother died when he was uh, a teenager, but he felt very comfortable with his family and generally I think is a much more upbeat, optimistic kind of person. Lennon was um, somebody whose youth was uh, in turmoil from the start. His mother uh, had married a, a sailor who uh, then left and came back and at one point tried to take him to New Zealand and he ended up having to literally in a room choose between his mother and his father. But his mother didn't want to raise him either because she had new boyfriends and the family just said this isn't the right place. So he ended up being raised by his aunt Mimi and didn't even get to know his mother until uh, he was a, a young teenager. And they finally let him know that she was in fact, you know, just a mile or so away. So he had about three years where he was interacting with his mother until she was killed uh, in, a, in a car accident. She was trying to cross the street and was just hit by a car uh, by the time Lennon was about 16. So Lennon had a lot of anger. Lennon had a lot of uh, just uh, struggle. And he was kind of a juvenile delinquent when he was uh, a youth. I mean, nothing, nothing really serious, but apparently uh, he had a gang of guys on bicycles. And I've heard people say running into them on the streets was not a pleasant experience. If you were a young man, they were going to give you uh, some real crap. Uh, and so his attitude was um, uh, much, much more cynical. I mean, the, the classic example that McCartney likes to use is uh, his song, Getting Better All the Time, which is a classic McCartney statement. And he says, and Lennon came in and added the line, can't get no worse. You know, which, you know, just complements it beautifully, but is also like, you know, if you put these guys together, their uh, their lives are going to be, uh, are going to express themselves in different ways. Uh, McCartney is also uh, a really, really gifted musician and creative spirit. And his ability to play instruments and construct stuff is part of what made the Beatles work uh, as a unit. Lennon was very creative in his own way, but in a much more oblique sense. Uh, his stuff with words is uh, much more inventive and even bizarre in nature than McCartney's. Uh, and his approach to harmony is also very peculiar. You would often find that uh, McCartney's songs would come in more or less complete 
and it was fairly easy for them to figure out how to deal with them. Lenin songs would come in in very incomplete form, and it often required everybody, uh, including not only all the Beatles, but also George Martin, their producer, to come up with ways to make them work. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, a song like Strawberry Fields Forever is a classic example. He came in with a song, and the way he performed it on the demo is basically the way he did it on the recording, but it was just him and guitar. And it took these, you know, take after take and, and scratching their brains and coming up with as many bizarre things as they can come up with until they finally had constructed the thing that we hear on the recording. Um, so their projects were primarily individual in nature. Um, although it's still fascinating to see ways in which they still interacted and it takes a while to figure this out but if you read various accounts you begin to find out that um, you know somebody will add a bit here and there and you begin to see that even songs that are clearly either a john song or a paul song nevertheless are collaborative as they're being put together in the studio so lastly, you mentioned that the Beatles, the sort of their early earlier music borrowed from the blues and from non-blues music. Can, so you can ex, can you explain how their influences impacted their music over time? Okay, this is going to be a little trickier because I no longer have my electric piano that I can do. I have a piano over there and I can try shouting. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are any number of ways you can think about it, but uh, can you hear? Does that yes, work? I, yes, I can. Okay, beautiful. Well, I mean, just to give you an example, there are many Beatles songs that to me have a collision, a direct collision between what I think of as an ordinary rhythm and blues framework kind of stuff they learned in Hamburg, and what I think of as a more conventional white key harmony kind of thing that they learned from popular song or from any number of other sources that may have been in their, uh, in their input. I mean, uh, I know that uh, McCartney, for example, uh, his father used to play all kinds of uh, old-fashioned tunes from the 30s and 40s, and that got absorbed into McCartney. So here's an example. This song, uh... I mean, that to me is, it, it literally is a straight 12-bar blues. And, you know, and that's very straightforward. Then for the bridge, he goes. And those two chords do not belong in a blues. And you can tell because right away he goes. With that flat of third. That's a very white key. And then you go back into that. And you go back into the blues realm. So there are any number of songs that do this kind of thing. Uh, I think I had mentioned to you in an earlier conversation the song You Can't Do That, which again is another 12 bar blues. Uh, 
that's a John Lennon song. But again, that that chord is again as unbluesy as you can imagine. And and this stuff, I mean, I, I say early stuff because there are, there are tons of examples from their early repertory. But I'm also thinking of things like uh, the song "Come Together," which is another one of these. slow, swampy. Okay, when you get to the bridge again. Again, really white. That chord um, is really just not part of the blues, but they just got in the habit, I think, of realizing that a song benefits by having these two different systems uh, colliding with each other. And, and there's just, you know, there's something about the combination of that that brings in some aspects from conventional harmony and some resources, but still prioritizes, you might say, uh, the bluesy stuff. I mean, it can be the reverse. A song like Blackbird, for example, example is mostly in what I think of as conventional harmony, but it does have for its climax into the light of the dark black night, which is a perfect bluesy phrase and just sort of nails the song into place. You just feel that 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 is really helpful for making that song feel complete. And that completeness is uh, is everywhere. I mean, one of the great things about the song Hey Jude is the fact that it is basically a very straightforward pop song that nevertheless ends with the na 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 hey jude and goes into a bluesy thing on the end and it just is so satisfying to sing that after you've gone through the whole thing with the song Hey Jude, which in some ways is sort of trying to break out of that. It goes na 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 na. So it's sort of like, you know, it's always staying within that duh. But then it finally goes to there at the end, na 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 na, hey Jude. And yeah, you can sing that forever because it just somehow feels perfect as a balance against everything you hear in Hey Jude. Uh, to have those two uh, parts fit together. I remember hearing how the Stones um, at a disco in London brought in their new album, Beggar's Banquet, and were playing it for this hip group of people. Everyone was loving getting to hear the new student Stones recording. And then Paul McCartney walked in with his brand new copy of Hey Jude Revolution and just said, why don't you put this on? And, and just imagining the Stones having to suddenly hear Hey Jude. And I, apparently Jagger was going, that's so effing unfair. Those, that's two songs in one song. You know, and just and just getting clobbered because and you know then they turn over the record and then there's the song Revolution, which of course is a, a John Lennon uh, thing. Yeah, they they just got clobbered uh, and uh, that, that's yeah must have been tough to be uh, be a pop idol in in the UK in the mid 1960s and have to deal with the with this particular group. Uh, Four headed monsters is what they were called. A four-headed monster. I think that was uh, that was Jagger's 
explanation for that for that group in some ways just just more powerful than your usual you know single person trying to get their their music out so thank you so much sure. uh professor devoe for sharing all of this uh knowledge and i think uh it's certainly going to inspire me to go back and listen to some more of the beatles and uh, find some of these things that you talked about so thank you so much i appreciate it okay great all right, great. And thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at alumni.virginia.edu backslash learn. We're excited to announce that you can also find this podcast on other recordings on Spotify. Uh, search for the UVA Lifetime Learning Channel. We look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.